Well, this last week was an interesting week, to say the least. <laughs> uh, had a lot of work to do, but we got it all done for the most part. Now we just have to program some things. So hopefully you're able to see things a little clearer, a little brighter, and uh, we'll make good, good use of this technology in the time to come. Don't forget about the conference coming up. We have some things back there you can hand out, some uh, flyers. You know, I'd really encourage you, if you have family that's Catholic, Roman Catholic, or you have friends, I would really, really encourage you to make it an effort, not just to pray for them, but to invite them out to hear Mike, because Mike knows all too well uh, what the Catholic Church teaches and how it does not line up, for the most part, to the Bible. And, And so he's going to be doing it in a very loving way, but a very firm way, and uh, that'll be November 10th, 11th, and 12th. Conference is free. Obviously, we'll be taking up a couple of love offerings for Mike and his ministry, proclaiming the gospel ministries. If you want to see a little preview of him, you can go on YouTube. He's got more than enough videos up there. You can find him up there and teaching and, and sharing uh, doctrinal truth. And that's really his heart. And so we're looking forward to him and his wife, Beth, coming and being with us for that weekend. Um, and we want to make sure that we have enough people to serve for that, that time, Friday night. I think we're starting at 6.30. And then uh, Sunday or Saturday, it'll just be uh, two sessions in the morning. And then we'll have lunch together and then one session on Sunday morning. I know it says three, two, three sessions on Saturday, but we changed that to two. So uh, we'll be looking forward to that in your time with us. Uh, thank you, Ken, for your words. Uh, brother, you truly are a brother to me in, in so many different ways, and we've been through a lot together. And uh, um, Ken's been here longer than I have, so that's going to say something. <laughs> he put up with a lot more than I had to, so uh, I appreciate him and Shelley and, and their ministry to Ambika and I, even as friends and as uh, co-laborers together in the gospel. And uh, had a, hasn't always been easy. <laughs> but uh, it's been a blessing to serve this congregation who has been more than willing to endure uh, each week my hour-long sermons and, you know, sometimes rambling, whatever. But I pray that I, more than anything else um, that whoever is in this pulpit is willing to embrace the Word of God and teach it uh, firmly and with authority, and we try to do that each week. And we also want to thank Kainoa, in his ministry here among us as our intern, and even Rudy as our worship leader in so many different ways, and, and other people. If we start mentioning people, we're going to get in trouble. So, but, uh, you know, it's truly from my heart. We, we, as a leadership team, truly thank each and every one of you um, for your trust, for your willingness to um, pray for us and love us despite all of the faults that we have. And so I pray that going forward, I don't think God's done with this church yet. You know, that was a big question when I came here. Is God done with this church? <laughs> and we even explored, I asked them, I said, what are, what are the golden calves here? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, uh, I don't know what the background of the church is, but from what I've heard, it's not too good <laughs> in a lot of different ways, a lot of splits and things like that. And so, uh, you know, is the name of the church a golden calf? Can we change the name of the church? I didn't know if we'd have to do that or not 25 years ago. But praise God, we didn't. And um, many of you don't know this, but long before I came here, probably about six years before I came here, um, I was over in Milpitas. We were living over there. I was a youth pastor at a church and had left that ministry and was working at a fast frame uh, store, framing people's pictures. And um, before we got called down to the desert, there were some individuals that asked me to maybe start a church in the area over there in Milpitas, Fremont area. And I was kind of against it because I just left the church in that area, and I don't think that's the right thing to do to start a church in the same area that you were employed when you were employed by another church there in ministry. And so uh, we did have a Bible study for the longest time in our house during that transition time. And I remember I found, after we actually moved here, I found a piece of note as I was going through my files, and it was a graphic that I came up and I had different names of churches that I prayed about starting. 
and what would I call the church if I started a church? You know, if we started a church, what would we call it? And one of the names was Grace Bible Church. <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> you know, I, I saw that and I'm like, wow. And uh, by the way, I mean, when I was employed with the district attorney's office down in Riverside County in Indio, uh, I thought it was my dream job. I thought, wow, this is nice. I like this. I got a badge and a car and a can of pepper spray. Uh, they didn't give me a gun for obvious reasons, but, you know, it, it was a fun job. You had some authority to kind of throw around a little bit and get into places other people couldn't. Just flash your badge, and it was, it was all for good reasons, mind you, but it was, it, it, it was an incredible job. And I remember when the church sent an envelope to our house down there, and I looked at it, and Grace Bible Church, Redwood City, I don't even know where that's at. And it sat on the counter for probably three days. And my wife said, aren't you going to open that envelope? I "Ah, I don't know. (laughs) I kind of like my job. I mean, ministries, I think my calling. But for right now, I'm kind of enjoying this. And besides, I got a PERS retirement with the district attorney's office. So this would be great if I worked here for many years. And, uh, well, I think one more day passed. And she said, you may think I'm crazy, but I think that's the church God's calling us to. We haven't even opened up the letter yet. And I thought, oh, what are you, some, you know, word of knowledge nut or something? What are you, you know, and I kind of threw it off. And I thought, well, I better open this letter. And the dialogue began. And we took about, I think it was like nine months to get to know each other. And I came up here several times and eventually was called to be their pastor in January of 1998. And I've been here ever since. So I thank you for enduring me all this time (laughs) and our ministry together. Yeah, so did I, brother. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> but I shaved my head. I'm not bald, so just so you know. But as we turn our hearts to God's Word, finally, um, the Gospel of John, uh, I'll just read our, our verse for today, and you can just remain standing. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, we began this last a couple weeks ago, actually. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we've been able to make our way through part of this epilogue. It goes all the way down, the kind of introduction to John's gospel, all the way down to verse 18, as I've told you. And we've seen his relationship basically... Uh, Christ's relationship to all to God and all things in verses 1 through 5. And we noted that Jesus is the eternal Word of God in verses 1 and 2. And we saw that his, He pre-existed. He doesn't have a beginning, so He's eternal. We saw His position and His person and His purpose and His power, that He is the creator of all things. And we also saw that He is the author of life which should point all people toward him. He's the only place that life can be found. And that was his relationship to God and all things. And then we, we looked at the second point in our study, and I'm just reviewing this because we, it's been a while since we've been in a couple of weeks, uh, since we've been in this, this book. I, I pray that you've enjoyed um, Kainoa's teaching and uh, others, and, and we've got some more coming up this next month. Uh, Jamie Bismeyer is going to be here on the 19th, the missionary to India, and uh, as well as the Nelsons. Randy Nelson is going to be here. So, but the second thing we said was his reason for coming into the world, and we saw that in verses 6 through 13, that he was prepared by John the Baptist, he preached to his own people, and that he presented to all who, he was presented to all who would receive him. And now the third thing we're looking at here in the last part of this epilogue, the last part of this introduction to this gospel in verses 14 to 18 really is his revelation of God, his revelation of God. And uh, we're really talking about God with us, Emmanuel, right? Uh, The Jesus, the eternal word becoming flesh. The truth of, of Christ's nature here his unblemished deity and his complete humanity boggles your mind. How do those two things coexist in one person? It's hard to understand. I don't understand it. But it's very vital theologically that you understand that. And it's crucial in a practical sense as well. When I'm, when I'm tempted to shake my fist at God 
in the heavens and wonder why, why he's allowing what to happen in my life to happen, you know what? I'm reminded that, wait a minute, God is not against me. God is for me. And God is not cruel. God is loving. And he, he wants the very best for me, even though I may not understand it at the time. And when Adam brought sin into this world and death uh, with this sin in Romans 5.12, it tells us this. I mean, the Lord could have just burned us up right there and said, I'm done. <laughs> he could have. But he didn't do that, did he? He, he loved us. And he continued to uh, minister and, and provide a way for us to have salvation. And we've, we've talked about that. The Creator voluntarily became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ here on earth, who suffered, the Bible says, as we suffer, who was tempted as we are tempted, and who endured injustice, really, honestly, like we will, or no man will ever know, really. Yet, the Bible says, without what? Without sin. It's amazing. And I, I pray that you are comforted, as I am comforted, to know that God understands that he has compassion on us, that he has empathy on us. And then through his incarnation, we can appreciate his compassion more fully because he lived and he died as a man. Jesus wasn't isolated from the, the physical pain on the cross. He felt every nail. He felt every scourge of the whip. And we can more easily, I think, understand and accept that in his resurrection, the Son is for us, even though sometimes you may be here today and you feel abandoned, you feel mistreated, or you feel punished by God. I can tell you, based on the authority of the Word of God, that is not the truth. That is not a, a truth from God. That's a lie from the enemy. God loves you. He wants the very best for you. He wants you to come to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the key verse that we're looking at here is, it says, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. I mean, that really says everything about Christianity that needs to be said, does it not? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's really the theology of Christianity. You take that away, you don't have anything. And the Word here, we, we learned last time, is the eternal God, the Son. The Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always existed. They didn't have a beginning. They're eternal. And it says the Word became flesh, and that we talked about how it, the second member of the Trinity, just in number, not in hierarchy, there's no hierarchy in the Trinity. They're all equally, co-equally God. Sometimes people don't understand that. They think that you know, you got God the Father, and he's ruling the roost, and then you have Jesus the Son, and he kind of does whatever his dad tells him, and then you have the Holy Spirit just kind of floats around and does whatever. That's not true. They're all God, equally. And so they've always existed eternally. And the Word became flesh tells us that Jesus was incarnate. He, he came down and he became a man. God became a man. Now, remember, God is eternal. God is pure. Uh, he has no beginning. He has no end. There's no changing God. God does not change, the Bible says. God is a pure, eternal being. Everything else that has been created is becoming. When you're born as a child, you're created, you're born, what do you do? You become an adult. You grow. God the word ami means to be, just to be. There's no growing with God. God doesn't grow in knowledge. God doesn't grow in wisdom. And you say, well, what about the verse that says that Jesus grew in, in knowledge and wisdom in favor with all men? Well, that's speaking of his what? His humanity. See, I mean, God could have had Jesus just come down as an adult, float out of heaven and come down as an adult, but no. He had him born through a virgin. And so John's point is very clear here. And really, God became something he had never been 
before. Think about that. God became something that he had never been before without ceasing to be what he has always been. (laughs) Think on that one for a while. God became something that he had never been without ceasing to be what he had always been. The word became flesh, it says. The eternal God became man. The word, pure eternal being, became a man. A creature becoming, starting out, what, as an embryo? Planted by the Holy Spirit in the virgin womb of Mary? Growing there for nine months? And then born as an infant? A child? A young adult? And then a man? Subject to all the change, the change of being part of his creation? And yet still maintain his full deity. <clears throat> and we looked at this last time. And so it, it's very important that when we, when we speak of this God becoming flesh, he, he still maintains his deity. But then it says here that he dwelt among us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt, it really means to tent. How many of you like to go camping? You set up your little tent. I mean, even when I used to go camping, I hated tents. I would never sleep in a tent. I never understood why people sleep in a tent. I mean, even in the rain or the snow, I would sleep out under the stars. If something's going to eat me, I want to see it coming. (laughs) You know, it's just too claustrophobic for me. And uh, I don't like camping anyway, as many of you know, but, um, you know, my idea of camping is going to Yosemite and staying at a nice hotel there in the valley or something. That's nice. Or going out on a hike and being able to come down back to a a hot spa or something. But um, some people love to camp. Well, that's what this means, you know, to tent. Uh, Another word we could use is to tabernacle. Tabernacle. He pitched his tent and he lived in his tent. It's only found in this gospel and in the book of, of Revelation, by the way. If you turn over to the book of Revelation... Show you where it's it's there. <clears throat> Revelation chapter seven. Revelation seven verse fifteen. It says there, therefore, <clears throat> they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night. What in His temple. Same word, tabernacle. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And then continue down there, verse 16. It says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's just a little bit of what we have to look forward to, right? I mean, that's, that's going to be an amazing time. And then over back in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. <clears throat> I was going to read just a couple verses here, but I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's such a good chapter. <clears throat> it says in verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the river of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Wow. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. Think about that. What an incredible time we'll have in heaven. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, 
and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, and this is written by the same by John, these words as he receives revelation from the Lord, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You know, I've yet to teach through the book of Revelation. I think that <coughs> may be a preview. We might do that next time because it's, it's really the one book that claims to have a blessing attached to it. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In verse 8 he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Then he says, worship God. That just goes to show you that the Bible's true when it says, you know, our worship is to be directed to God and God alone. We're not to worship other individuals. We're not to worship material goods. We're not to worship angels. <laughs> I know a lot of Christians that worship a lot of things. And we all have that tendency, and we have to be reminded, no, we worship God and God alone. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without, what does it say? Without price. Be very careful of people that say, oh, you know, you'll get a blessing from God if you'll send your thousand dollars to my ministry or whatever false teacher beware god doesn't need our money verse 18 i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them god will add to him the plagues described in this book that's why we believe when we teach we say chapter, verse. If somebody comes to me and says, well, I believe this. Two words, chapter, verse. Where do you see it in the Bible? If you can't find it in the Bible, I don't, I don't care what you believe. When it comes to theology, people are making up their own theology today. But he says, you know what? Don't take away the words of the prophecy of this book, because if you do, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the book. Verse 20, and he who testifies to these things, saying, surely I am coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. This is talking about God tabernacling, coming down, the presence of God in our midst. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was probably one of the most the greatest sentences here in the whole gospel. I mean, John could have said something like this. You know, the word lived among us. But instead, he, he used this unusual word, translated dwelt, which means to tabernacle or pitch your tent. And it's used 
in the Old Testament as the tabernacle, where God dwelt with his people in the wilderness when they were wandering around out there. John doesn't mean by this term that Jesus' humanity was temporary, as the tabernacle was, but rather his stay on earth was temporary. You know, Jesus has the same glorified body he left here with. We will recognize him in heaven. By using this word that was used of the tabernacle, we, he really ties that together with seeing Jesus' glory, because that's where the glory of God dwelt, in the tabernacle. And he wants us, John wants us, to make those connections. Just as the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt and where his people, uh, uh, with his people, he dwelt there with his people and he manifested his glory. So Jesus, in Christmas time, we sing Emmanuel, God with us, right? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, tabernacling with us. Just as the tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp, Guess what? Christ is to be the center of the church. He's the head of the church. Everything needs to revolve around Christ. Just as sacrifices, and you could say uh, worship, were offered at the temple, or and at the tabernacle, uh, so, so Jesus is our, what, complete and final sacrifice. We'll be sharing that next week as we have a communion time together, and we have access to God through him, the Bible says. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's who? The Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to a certain church, you don't have to belong to a certain club, do a certain thing. No, you just have to come through Christ. Every aspect of the tabernacle speaks of Christ. And the idea that he would come down and dwell among us it's hard for us to fathom. The only thing that I can liken it to is for someone who would grow up with privilege here in the United States and maybe live on a big, huge estate and just have money coming out their ears, and they forsake all that, and they go to one of the poorest places in the world and live among the people to reach them for Christ. I mean, think about it. And there's been many missionaries that have done just that. There's one missionary that was, he was a medical missionary actually from uh, England. And when we were over in India, we saw the hospital uh, up in Herbert Poor that he built. And our church is actually responsible for remodeling their uh, OBGYN wing there, which is kind of neat. But it's amazing, this man who came from England, very accomplished, I think he was some kind of an engineer, architect kind of a thing, and came to India and he saw the plight of the people and they had no hope without Christ. And he could only stay there for a certain period of time under his job occupation. And so what he did was he actually returned to England and he became an ophthalmologist. (laughs) Because if you were a doctor, you could stay there as long as you wanted. And he went all the way back, became an ophthalmologist, went back to India, started this hospital. And it's, it's just amazing to see, it still exists today as part of a huge Christian network now. Actually, Sam Rajkumar's brother was um, the chief surgeon there at that hospital for many years. But as these people come from all over, they come into this hospital, and the hospital is kind of built in the round, and it has different wings where, you know, one is for ophthalmology, another one is for internal medicine, and maybe uh, OBGYN, whatever, all these different wings. But when the people come, they have to gather in a center, kind of in the middle of the, the, wing, uh, the circle, and all these people gather there. And even when he first started it, they would just gather around him out in this Uh, lawn area and they would explain hey i need treated for this i need treated for that and they had all these kind of medical ailments and he was a doctor so he knew how to treat them and what he told them was well the first thing you have to do is you have to sit here and we're going to give you some scripture and we're going to have a bible study and he would present the gospel to these people every day and he'd always make them pay with something it could be an egg it didn't have to be a lot and obviously he made exception for those who were just dire poor and had nothing, 
but he thought, you know what? It wasn't because he needed anything. He was independently wealthy, but he wanted those people to pr- count it as a privilege to be there. And even to this day, when people come to that hospital, guess what they do? All the people gather in a big like a setting like this, and they have a pastor come up from the local uh, villages or whatever, and they preach the gospel to these people. And only after that are they treated. And see, this is, this is the, the interesting thing when you, you think of how God uses us in different ways. And just as these sacrifices and, and worship were offered at the tabernacle, Jesus is our final sacrifice. And we have access through him. So he came down and he, he had this tabernacle here. Um, in the tabernacle there was a bronze altar. And on the bronze altar they would sacrifice and a, a bronze uh, uh, lever for, for cleansing. Uh, and all that points to Christ when you, when you really study it out. And I put some of the, the things there in the notes. They had a table of what they called showbread in the holy place, and it speaks of Christ, the living bread. They had a golden lampstand. How does that point to Christ? Well, it points to Christ because he is what? The light of the world. He illuminates the things of God. They had an altar of incense. That reminds us that Christ is constantly really interceding for us. Isn't that a comforting thought that Christ is up there interceding for us 24-7? When the enemy accuses us, Jesus says, no, 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 that's covered. (laughs) That's washed away. The blood of the Lamb, it's gone. And the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was made of of wood and it was covered with gold and and points to kind of different, you could say the different natures of Christ, some say. On top of the ark was a mercy seat where the blood of the atonement was sprinkled. Inside were the tablets of the law, the fulfillment of, of the law was done by Christ himself. There was a jar of manna in there, and that points to Christ as our sustenance. Arid's rod that budded really points to Jesus as the branch who was raised from the dead and gives new life to all those who were dead in their sins. So Jesus is really our, our tabernacle. He, he dwelt among us in every way. And we, we don't want to be short-sighted with that. We need to be reminded of that. Well, it also says that not only... Was Jesus the eternal word and dwelt among us and became flesh and dwelt among us? But thirdly, the apostles saw the glory of the word who became flesh. Look at what it says in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He set up his tent among us for 33 some years. And it says, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, One thing that we we forget sometimes is the idea that God is a God of glory, majesty. I think that we make God too too simplistic sometimes. We, We forget that God is holy. And this really probably refers back to Exodus 33 and 34, and you can read that on your own, but that's where, you remember the story where Moses asked to see God's glory. And God explains to Moses, you can't, <laughs> you'll die. I don't want you to die, I like you too much. You can't see my face and live. But what did he do? You remember the story, he hid Moses, what, in the cleft of the rock. And he covered him with his hands so that when he passed by, that Moses just saw the backside of God. And in Exodus 34, 7, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Notice that word truth there. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means... 
leave the guilty unpunished. See, if you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, you're going to deserve, you are deserving of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. The only way out of that is when you come to Christ as your Lord and Savior. You put your faith and trust in Christ. You look to Jesus and you say, God, I can't do this on my own. I've tried for many years. I'm giving up. I'm just going to give everything to the Lord. And you put your faith and trust rather than trying to work for your salvation in the work that Jesus has already done. And the Bible says that if you do that and you believe that he is the Son of God and you believe that he did live here on earth, you believe that he did die for your sins, and then on the third day he rose from the grave. The Bible says if you believe that and you commit your life to that, guess what? Good news is you will be saved. You will be saved. You will be transformed by the grace of God. And so he can't just overlook your sin. It says the guilty will not be left unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And in the, the profound statement there, we hear of God's grace and truth, that he is abounding in loving kindness, that's grace, but also that he is true to his word. He is holy, and he will punish the guilty. Well, back to John 14, 114, it says that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. It's so important to realize that those two words are inseparable in Christianity. You cannot experience the grace of God until you what? Hear the truth of God. Commit yourself to the truth of God. A lot of people think that, well, I just need to believe in Jesus. And No, you, you, you need to obey the gospel to be saved. That's what the Word of God says. You need to obey the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus died in our place. And grace and truth ultimately come together where? At the cross. When you look at the cross and you see an empty cross and you realize, wow, my Savior hung there on that cross for me, that's the truth of the gospel. And when you commit your life to that, guess what? God says, I will now show you my grace. I will forgive you of your sin. Because you're putting your faith and trust in the substitute that I put forth for you. And now he can offer grace to someone who is even guilty of sin because of what Jesus did. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, that's what happens. It is only by believing the truth that we can experience God's grace and forgiveness. That's the only way. And the Bible is very clear about that, about how that came about and what our our advantages of, of believing that is really and he tells us that in verse 14 that we have seen his glory we have seen the majesty of god it dwelt among us glory is of the only son from the father so he's focusing on the son but he realizes that by coming through the son you will experience the glory of the father as well and he closes off there and he says, full of grace. In simple terminology, grace is what? God's unmerited favor. God gives you something really that you don't deserve. God gives us something that we don't deserve. And it's important that you know, we realize what grace is. Grace is different from mercy, right? Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. What do we deserve? Punishment by a holy God because of our sin. But he shows us mercy. He withholds his righteous punishment because we put our faith, our trust in Christ. And I think that it's important that we, we realize these two truths are inseparable. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, uh, basically, you know, when you stop and think about it, 
is a very telling verse. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. See, God is a holy God. We have to get this through our mind. We have to stop believing that we can just buddy up to God and he's the man upstairs and he's our buddy and he helps us out. and He is all those things. <laughs> but don't ever forget that God is holy. And God deserves worship do his holy name. And that's the, the gracious side of God that we are allowed to cozy up to a God who is completely holy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also says they're full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. And that is revealed through Christ. How so? Well, he said, I am the what? I am the way, the light, and the truth. Uh, in all, that, that word truth is a great word as we're going to find as we go through this gospel because it occurs uh, some 24 times. And this is the first reference. And in almost every case, including this one, it's related to the character of who? God. That's what he's speaking of. And by the way, this is one of the last times that John uses the word in relating to Christ. Down in verse 17, he speaks of Christ. Grace and truth came through. He doesn't say the word anymore. He says, Jesus Christ. And so it's very important that when we, when we work our way through this that we realize, wow, this is... This is an amazing, an amazing portion of Scripture. Speaking of the incarnation of Christ, something we'll never quite understand. But how do we apply this to our lives here, just in closing quickly? How does this make sense to us as believers? What does this do for us as followers of Christ? What are some qualities you could say of authentic faith if you put your faith and trust in christ today and you say well i'm a christian well how do you know your faith is genuine there's many people that are deceived today and i just want to leave with you five practical qualities here that flow out of a life of trust in christ first of all a genuine believer is not too independent to admit his or her own needs you're not too independent to admit his or her own needs. Throughout the gospel, we're going to see that uh, John writes of those who needed healing, who those who, who needed even forgiveness or sometimes enlightenment to understand their own helplessness. And they came to Christ for what? They came to Christ for help. You know, I don't know about, I don't know about you, but... I don't like asking people for help. I thank God for brothers like Ken, who is just there when I need help, even though I didn't ask him to be there. <laughs> this last week, there was many times when, you know, whether I was up on a ladder, up on a lift, way up there, replacing a light or something, Ken's like, I'm just going to stick around. I said, well, I don't need you. To, yeah, that's fine. You can go. No, I'm just going to stick around just to make sure. You know, um, today I had to, I was all the way up at the peak of that thing, Replacing that light, and I was trying to direct it at the right place. And I was on a lift, those lifts that are out there by the Fellowship Hall. And, uh, you know, you get up there, and you, I'm fine with heights for the most part, but, you know, I do have an issue with vertigo, so it's probably not too bright to get up there with it. But I was in a basket and everything. It was safe. And uh, I, I got up there, and I thought, well, how am I going to know if this is right? I don't want to keep on doing this all day. So I called Chelly. The admin who's over in the office, I called her. I had my cell phone with me up there, so I called her and uh, said, hey, can you come over and just quickly see if I, this light is arranged right because I don't want to keep on doing this. Sure, so she came up and she's standing over there and I remember I was up in the basket and I'm just looking at the light and I'm moving it and all of a sudden I looked down and I said, is that okay? And I thought, whoa, she's way down there. <laughs> and the whole basket started, you know, my legs started shaking and, and I'm thinking, well, this is weird, you know. But it's it's it's... It's important to be humble enough to understand that, you know what, sometimes you need help. And that's one of the hardest things for believers to do, and even non-believers. 
They think they have this. I got it. Don't worry. I, you know, I know Jesus is good for you, but I got this. It'll all work out. No, it's not going to work out, my friend, without Christ. It will not work out. You need to understand your dependence needs to be upon Christ. You can't be so independent that you fail to understand your need of a Savior. Secondly, a genuine believer is not too busy to know the people around him or her. Uh, you know, it's so important to put people in the proper order, perspective. They're not tasks. People are people. Are the priority of, of believers living out their, their faith in truth. It should be people, not tasks. You don't use people to get a task done. And sometimes, I think, all too often we say that, you know, the, the people they love are more important than anything else, but really we fail to express it sometimes until that day when they're laying cold in a, in a casket in front of a, at a funeral home or something, and then, oh, then, then it's time to express it. Well, they're already dead <laughs> at that point. They've already gone on. And so authentic trust in Christ recognizes the value of others. Thirdly, a genuine believer is not too proud to rely upon God's Word. Most churchgoers really do their best to live in obedience to what the Scriptures say, what they know the Scriptures to say, but genuine faith really hungers to know as much about God's Word as possible. Why? Because it doesn't trust in itself. You're not willing to trust in yourself. Genuine trust in Christ remains humbly devoted to knowing what He thinks about life, not what you think, and how He would have us live, not how we want to live. So don't be too proud to rely on God's Word. Fourthly, a genuine believer doesn't rely solely upon his or her own perspective. You know, a genuine believer would have no trouble admitting the continuing impact of their sinful nature, their sinful desires. And we should be doing whatever is necessary to nullify that influence when we're making decisions. We should seek the truth in God's Word and pray for the Holy Spirit's leading and submit to some wisdom when it comes to mature counseling. Remain sensitive to the criticism of those around us, even if it's your enemy. God's allowing you to hear that for a reason. And then the last thing, a genuine believer doesn't take self or life too seriously. Um, you know, that's not to say that life sometimes is not serious and that life is not dismal and difficult at times. It all is. We all have our times in those valleys of despair. But life in a, a fallen world is hard, is it not? Regardless, genuine believers maintain a loose grip on the people they love and even looser grip on their possessions. They accept injustices and abuses and setbacks as confirmation that they are on the right road to glory. If everybody around you is telling you, boy, you're just a good person and you're doing great, and beware, <laughs> there's something wrong. Because you know that's not true. The Bible declares that not to be true. You have to maintain a proper perspective. Don't allow bitterness to spoil your outlook when it comes to relationships. Choose rather joy. Never pass up the opportunity to laugh with somebody, or even at yourself for that matter. See, we can do that as believers when we're genuinely trusting the God who is unfailingly good to us and utterly sovereign in every way. We know that whatever comes into our life comes by His hand. An authentic belief in Jesus Christ has, what, eternal implications, as John wants us to understand. He wants us to see that Christ came to seek and to save who? The lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. To receive them to himself. And then we can enjoy worship in his presence forever. Father, we thank you for John's words that 
as the Son of God, He came down and became flesh, among, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Lord, I pray for each heart that's here in this building this morning, and even those represented by the families of those here, and even over the live stream and on the website as people listen. Lord, we pray that You would do a work in their hearts, that You would show them their need of a Savior. Lord, that they couldn't just give a nice little nod to what was said and say, well, that was interesting, but that doesn't affect me. Now, the truth of God affects all of us. And one day we will stand before a holy God. And the question he will ask is, what did you do with my son? Did you obey the gospel? Did you come to Christ? Utter despair over your sin. Turn from your sin to the Savior. And cry out to him to forgive you and to save you. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says you do that. If you follow him, you will be saved. You will be transformed. It's not something a church does for you. It's not something somebody else, a priest or a pastor, can do for you. You have to come to Christ on your own. You come to Christ with all of the weight of your sin, and you present it to him. And you say, I'm done with this. I want to trust you as my Lord and Savior. Save me from my sin. Be merciful to me, Lord, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will answer when it's prayed from a sincere, broken heart. Lord, we ask that as believers we would be edified, we would be built up in our own faith, and we would be reminded that we live in a, a world that is quickly falling apart. It's a lost and dying world. And Lord, help us to keep a loose handle on things around us. Help us to be able to invest in eternity and in eternal ministries and purpose. And Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts to reach this area, the peninsula, which is a very dark area spiritually. Many people here have been turned away from you, not turned toward you. And Lord, we pray that you would make this place a magnet for those who want to hear the truth that you would draw men and women, old and young, children, boys and girls, Lord, with the truth of your word and do that gracious act of salvation in their hearts as they commit their lives to you as well. And Father, we just pray that you would bless us this next week, help us to keep our eyes and our hearts and our perspective heavenly. And Father, we... Pray for all those over in Israel as well who are serving in harm's way with IDF and even our own armed forces in this, in this uh, period of time, Lord. We pray for divine protection over them. And also for the Palestinian people who are the innocent civilians living in this war zone, Lord, that you would divinely protect them as well. Father, we thank you and pray you bless our fellowship time across the way and bless our our closing song as well. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last.